Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, for my favorite part of the show, as always, and uh, really appreciate this guest for making time. We, we've been working on this for a while, doing you know doing it around holidays and. Uh, uh, in, and was really hesitant to switch and it, just because we couldn't marry it up because this was the perfect guy to help us land, uh, in my opinion, the journey we've been on for about the last month and a half and the interviews that we've done during that time. And uh, so so I thought the, the perfect bookend to this all would be Mr. Grant Williams, and he's kind enough to join us. Grant, thanks for coming on again, and it's just an absolute pleasure to have you. Mate, always a pleasure. Love to hear from you. Uh, well, you and, and speaking of speaking of podcast, man, uh, you guys have been cranking out some uh, some great ones. And, and let's let's kind of review just again, because um, I feel like there's just new, you know, new there's new branches sprouting off that tree constantly. So you guys do the week in doom now where you and Doomberg do a do a deal together. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. 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 That's, and uh, that's always good fun. Yeah, and then we're doing we're still doing the end game. You're doing your podcast, just the Grant Williams special by itself. Um how are things going, Grant? How, how you made this tra- you went behind the paywall what about a year ago? Um yeah, yeah, it must be about a year ago now. Yeah, maybe yeah, maybe a little bit more than a year. But um no, no it's been great. I mean, I I just uh I'm very lucky to have a bunch of co-hosts on these various podcasts, you know, Bill Fleckenstein and Steph Pomboy and Ben Hunt and uh, Luke Groman and, of course, Doomberg. And um, they're, just, they're just great people to sit down and have conversations with. And I think ha- having that extra voice helps make sure people don't get tired of listening to the same old perspectives from me and, um, <laughs> and they get to hear the thoughts of, the thoughts of my co-hosts as well. So, uh, yeah, it's been, it's, been, it's been so much fun and, um, and just hugely educational for me. Yeah. And then and then before we really get into it, just kind of a part of the business side of it. One of the things that I've admired about your work, and I don't think it's something that people really appreciate. I certainly didn't until I started doing this. But you're an excellent interviewer. Um, where did you did that surprise you? Did that just come naturally to you? Um, I, I think it's again, having done this. Um, you just look at it from a completely different perspective. You know what I mean? And um, I, I, you're very interviewing people is not nearly as easy as it sounds. Um, how, how do you explain that? Again, did it surprise you? Is it something you've read up on? Well, well, you're very kind. Um, I, I, I've certainly not read up on it. I, I think I'm just naturally curious, you know, and mm-hmm. um, and so I'm I'm keen to hear what other people have to teach me and, and I'm not in any hurry to try and prove to the world how smart I am. So I just, I just ask questions that I'm genuinely interested in the answers and then I shut the hell up and stay out of the way. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I, I wish there was a bigger secret to anything than that, but really that's, that's what I've kind of narrowed it down to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that second part <laughs> is I, I had to learn that a little bit as well. And I hope, I, I hope I've figured it out to this point, but there and I'll just be wide open there. There was a tendency in the beginning to feel like I needed to jump in and, you know, make myself sound smart or, or keep everybody interested and that you're, you know what I mean? Just kind of overplaying your hand and then realizing that the best form of interviewing is just letting that curiosity go where it goes and ask those questions. And then, like you said, just shut the hell up and get out of the way. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it, it takes you down. It takes you down genuine, avenues of interest rather than you know pre preconceived ideas of, of what you might be 
supposed to ask a certain person. That's, yeah. that's what I found anyway. Yeah. Well, all righty. <clears throat> well, I've got here. Let's 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 get it rolling. And, I, and I'm going to come. I'm going to come right out of the gates, uh, uh, completely unleaded here, and, and just throw it at you. Um, it's something, and, and I want to get into the conversation that you had with James Aiken race recently, just because I thought it was um, just such an intriguing, refreshing way that I think he addresses things and the way he looks at things, and also with a big veil of or a big layer of humility, which is something that. I don't know. I don't know if you feel the same way, but when I listen to other man, money managers talk, when I don't hear that embedded humility, I, I'll continue listening. But there's a part of me that shuts off because I feel like if you've really done this job with, with you know, uh, serious money on the line, I, I feel like it just commands humility. You know, and, and if there isn't humility there, it's almost you know the hallmark of a charlatan. But it, 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 do, you, do you would you agree with me? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I think um, the more the more time you spend in markets, in theory, the more humble you should get because um, because they have a, a habit of time and time again demonstrating exactly why you should be humble. You know, at the end of the day, if you think about what this game is, this game is about trying to predict the future. Um, so you, you, you're, the ultimate outcome is unknowable to you. So so any idea that you shouldn't be humble about this is is ridiculous to me frankly i mean we're all we're all just guessing that's all we're doing so if you appreciate that everything you say is a guess then you know you realize that that uh, the best you can do is is hope to shave the odds slightly better than a coin toss in your direction and if you can do that then you'll do very well over time but um you know that's why for me um well let's take bitcoin for example i, I hate to throw the B word in there at the beginning of the conversation. But, you know, what we've seen in, in Bitcoin on both sides of the debate is is so much certainty. You know, it's, it's so much Bitcoin's going to be a million dollars by here and Bitcoin is the future and Bitcoin is this and Bitcoin is that. And on the other side, you know, Bitcoin's worth nothing, Bitcoin's going to zero. Um, and the truth is that none of us know. And so I think if, 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 you, if you try and get into a conversation and try and get into a debate with people that, that hold their position so dogmatically, it's really a waste of time because you, you, you're not going to convince them. And, and this, for me, is one of the reasons why I haven't really bothered spending too much time on Bitcoin because I, I think everyone's got an opinion on it and those opinions on both sides are remarkably strongly held. So what's the point, right? What's the point in talking to someone about it? Because if they hear something that, that, that contradicts their case, they're going to find some reason in their own mind to, to discount it. And and if they hear someone that reinforces their belief, they're going to, you know, champion that and share it. And so I, I just, I just find this, that any semblance of certainty about the future is an immediate red flag to me. You know, all these people that, that post up on Twitter saying, oh, you know, here's, here's what's going to happen to the markets. They're going to correct to this, then go up to that. And, and they just say it with such certainty. And I, I immediately discount that, you know, whereas, whereas you, could, you could offer the same message, but at least say, look, you know, my work tells me that this is the most likely outcome. It, it, it's a very different message. And I think you can, you can, you can infer an awful lot about the person delivering that message from from how they from how they write things like that out, and and for me it, it it it's a it's a it's a great tell. 
Oh, man, I, I could not agree with you more. It, it reminds me of the debates because I and I and I'm not sure that you and I have discussed this before, and I'm not sure that I've heard your thought, your, your, your opinions on this. But I, I would imagine they're not far off. I, you know, over the course of the last five years or so, I've gotten to several Bitcoin debates. And my point has always been, look, I understand precisely why you like it. And for those reasons, I find it intellectually attractive as well. And I'm cheering for it. Uh, You know, I think that if the world ran on a protocol, something like Bitcoin or maybe even on Bitcoin, I personally think that it would probably be a substantial improvement from where we're at. Um, The problems I had is people would tell me, well, oh, it's an inflation hedge. And my first question would be, how do you know that? They're like, when they start getting into the protocol, the way it's built. And I go, well, well, hold on a second, right? Best laid plans. (laughs) It's an inflation hedge when it proves to be so, right? And, you know, here we are staring at the hottest inflation in 40 years and the thing's down 65%. And I don't say that to rub that into the coiners' faces, but I say it is a, a lesson that I think we should all learn, which is just because the intellectual construct or philosophy or banner behind something declares it to be so doesn't mean it is right. I mean, we, you and I refer to gold as a long-term inflation hedge because it's got a couple thousand years of a track record of being that. And it's just amazed me the certainty of which people will transcribe these values onto things, right? Graph them onto things and, and just believe it with a religious like fervor. Well, look, we've, we've had a, a, a really good example of this in the opposite direction with QE. You know, when QE was begun in 2009, it was certain that it was going to create inflation. Uh, and, of course, it didn't. Or it didn't noticeably in, the, in terms of the kind of inflation people were warning about, CPI inflation. And full disclosure, generated- Grant, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I was full disclosure. I was 100% <laughs> in that camp. No, no, as was I, as was I. Um, you know, but this was something that, you know, was, was a – was a new tool. I mean, you could you could read about it in the past. You could read about similar uh, experiences in the past. But we didn't have any real world data. It's certainly in our living memory that we could um, that we could we we could we could kind of pin to it. And so I think going into it, we all thought, "Wow, this is going to be incredibly inflationary." Now, of course, it it, it was and it wasn't. It was is very inflationary for asset prices. Um, so I think I think there was there, there, there was a win for the inflationists on that count, but of course it didn't that didn't matter so much. It didn't matter because the problem that was going to curtail the central banks was obviously CPI inflation. Now, now that we've we've got kind of fiscal and monetary policy firing on both cylinders at the same time, um, the transmission mechanism is different, and so here we are with eight point six percent inflation. Um, but your point about Gold is is the same, you know. With gold, you can look back um, over thousands of years, and and whilst everybody's got a period they can point to that, that argues their case for them, um, you can take the whole and say, well, look, you know, here we are. There's the old saw that one gold coin will buy a tailored suit, going back to Roman times when it cost one gold coin to have a toga made, and here we are today. A, 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 tailor-made suit you can buy for a couple of thousand bucks and hey presto gold coin will buy that for you so there is there is some kind of super long timeline proof that that works but people will 
cherry pick data and say, well, hey, you know what, there was this period of inflation, like gold right now, gold hasn't done anything in this period of inflation. Why isn't gold up, you know, 9%, 10% uh, based on these numbers? And so, you know, everything, everything is timeline related. Everyone, everything depends on your investment horizon. Everything depends on the time frame you're looking at. And you, and you, might, you might position yourself very differently in gold um, if you had a short-term time horizon to give us a long-term time horizon. Mm. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's problematic, but there are no simple answers to any questions in this business. You know, we, 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 absent some kind of real interest rate, which does mean there is an absolute, i.e. you can put your money in the bank and, and stay ahead of inflation and be just fine. But right now, with negative interest rates and zero cost of capital, there are no absolute answers to any questions, which is, which is again, brings us full circle to this idea that people, and I, and I don't mean to pick on the Bitcoin, but it's just such a, 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 a recent and very obvious topical example, um, people sticking to this narrative. You know, I, I still see people saying that they expect Bitcoin to be at you know, $200,000 by the end of this year. I mean, okay, but... It's a guess. I mean, it's it's a it's a pure guess, and right now it's looking like a crazy one. But people are doubling down because they believe it. Yeah, yeah. They're, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna start referring to that as pulling a sailor. Uh, yeah, right. You know, what I mean, yeah. I, I want that to become, well, you know, a, a, a well, not a a verb, right? I'm I'm pulling a sailor. Um, yeah, watching that cat uh, double down, real. <laughs> Just a mind blower. Um, this this you brought up something that I've been thinking about for a long time, and 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 I suppose this has always been the, been the way of it. Um, nothing new, but it does it does shock me sometimes that when navigating these markets and navigating these arenas, and and how many um, uh, experienced players. Uh, engage in this practice that I'm about. And I, I refer to this as shopping for certainty. Um, it, it amazes me how many people in financial markets, uh, some with even more experience, you know, some with more experience than me are shopping for certainty in an arena where we should all know by now that there is none. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, and you know, no need to throw names. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. It's not my, not my way. Uh, but there's a guy on Twitter that is very much followed, um, and, and, and some pretty ardent followers as well, but this guy will post his market targets or whatever, or or cycle targets. You know, what he thinks is going to happen in the market over the next 12 months. And, um, he posts no data. Right. There's nothing backing his trade, his his reviews up or his, or his forecasts up uh, purely directional. He gets very irritated anytime somebody questions him, but he refuses to. You know, there's there's nothing there. It's just this. This is what's going to happen. And, and I've watched the follower numbers count and I've watched people get sucked into it. And it, it's it's amazed me because you can see what's happening intellectually. It's almost like they're throwing in the towel and going, OK. I can't navigate this anymore. It it sort of reminds me of biblical times, right? The Israelites going, you got to give us a king, right? We've been wandering around out here in the desert for too long. You got to give us a king. Um, And it kind of reminds me of these people doing the same thing where you watch them set, you know, all the things that they should know. There is nobody out there with a golden fleece, right? There's nobody out there with this secret advantage hidden up their sleeve that we should all just follow and listen to. Is there something about this cycle that has magnified that or, or is this just always been the way of it? 
<clears throat> no, absolutely. I, I think I think this this cycle has been um, has been uh, magnified by social media. You know, and 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 you, you look at a lot of these people, and what they want is for people to follow them, to believe in them, and that just happens to coincide with a period in time where so many people are looking for someone or something to believe in, and so for every person who's skeptical of someone that puts out targets like that and just says, this is what's going to happen. There are five people who sit and think, finally, someone is going to lead us from the promised land. Right. Uh, and, and they are telling us what's going to happen. And I can follow that person. And, and look, this is, <clears throat> this is a big problem today because th- there's a, there's a, there's a degree of responsibility that comes with giving people this kind of advice. And, and, and that is, making sure that the people that take that advice are equipped to, to handle it effectively because it, it's fine saying, Hey, I think, um, you know, Netflix is the greatest stock in the world and it's going to, it's going to go up 10 X. But for, for every person that then on that advice buys it, those people are for the most part waiting for that same guy to tell them when to sell it. Right. And so, you know, but that guy's moved on to the next idea and the next idea and the next idea. And he may have sold his Netflix sometimes to the people who he told to buy it. Um, sometimes not. Uh, you know, a lot of these people have clients of their own that they, that, that, who pay them for their advice. Um, and so they're obligated to those guys to keep them informed. But they're under no obligation to, to, to come out on Twitter and, and tell everybody and make sure everybody that took their advice the first time around hears them when they say, okay, I've, I've, you know, the trade's changed. So there's this, this, this abdication of responsibility that is incredibly dangerous. Um, and in normal times, it would be tough. But in, a, in times like this where because of social media, people are inclined to, to if we're going to stick with the biblical references, believe in false prophets just because they have a load of followers. You know, you, you look at someone writing something – on Twitter saying, oh, I think you should buy this or sell that. And you go, wow, they've got 50,000 followers. They must be legit, and so I'm going to follow them. Um, and, of course, it, you know, it doesn't mean anything. None, none of it really means anything. It, it, ultimately, we're all responsible for our own futures. And, and even if you want to get ideas from someone in the public arena, it's on you to then take ownership of that. If you if you buy Netflix because someone told you to, well, you own that position. It's your responsibility. You, you can't rely on, on that person to uh, to tell you when to sell it or tell you when to double down or average or whatever it may be. And and this idea of, of responsibility is, is a much broader one within society. You know, it, it, we're all looking to point the fingers and someone's got to be to blame for everything that goes wrong and we're looking for scapegoats and we're looking for you know people who've 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 done the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong people uh, where's the responsibility the personal responsibility for, for our own decisions you know it, it we, we decide who to follow we decide whose advice to take no one's forcing us to do that and so i think the sooner we all realize that that hey if if i buy a stock based on someone else's recommendation my decision was to believe them. So it's my position. It's my responsibility. And, you know, I, I, I suspect we'll get back there, but, but the journey from here to there, I think is going to be incredibly painful, sadly. Yeah. It reminds me, you, you, you've been more on the institutional side of this. So maybe you've heard of this anecdotally. Uh, maybe you haven't just cause you know, the, 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 the stock broker advisor side is, is far different. The interactions are far different than the worlds that you've swam in. 
and the jobs that you've done. But I remember when I started in this business, my, uh, I had this, I, I had this great manager. Literally, he could have played like the stock brokerage branch manager in any movie. Uh, right. you know, just, he just central casting. He had the, the custom Italian suits, you know, the, 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 the $20,000 Panerai watches, uh, you know, the, the glasses, balding, um, but was also just a very good guy that would give you the tokens of wisdom. You know what I mean? Like just, a, he was that guy. And, um, w- when I was starting out and just a heck of a guy too. So if he's out there listening, uh, love you, man. Uh, anyway, anyway, um, but he was telling me a story when I started, he's like, you know, back in the day, this used to be a lot easier, you know, speaking of rounding up clients. And the reason I'm telling this is I just think that this is such a good anecdotal story for people to understand and conceptualize the amount of snake oil they're being sold all the time. He said there were a bunch of guys back in the day that would get a group of clients or a prospective clients, right? Ideally like a hundred people. And you would feed them these guaranteed stock buys, All right. But you'd split the group down the middle and you'd tell one side of the group to buy it and you'd tell the other side of the group to sell it. Right. Whichever ended up being true, you called that side of it and you disregarded the other side. Right. And then you gave them another stock pick. And again, you split them down the middle and said, buy it or sell it. Right. And you worked it down about three times. And after you, you know, you just kept going to the side that was correct. And then after about three times of doing that, you'd go to those people and say, do you want to open an account? And, you know, their question, their answer 100% of the time was, heck, yeah, man, you just gave me three golden stock picks and all three of them won. And I I remember hearing that and just laughing and going, if that is not a a perfect illustration of, right, the amount of snake oil and any time you hear certainty or any time you see somebody that you think has got it completely figured out, there's probably something that you're not aware of. Yeah, I mean, look, we, we, we know it's a numbers game because we sit around watching the numbers all day. But when, right. when you put it in those terms, every aspect of it is a numbers game. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, I haven't heard the anecdote, but sadly, and, and I wish my reaction was anything other than this, but I'm kind of like, yeah, I can see how that would happen. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> big thinking. I, I, I wanted to start off, my, my first question I had for you was big thinking, and it was one that I discussed with Hugh Hendry. And you and I were uh, um, talking about this off of air. He he sure is a delightful guy to interview. Talk about an interview that does itself. Um, just a just such a gentleman, such a nice guy, and um, the way he thinks and the speed at which his brain works is just fascinating to me. Um, I could have chatted with him all day, but but one of the things that I spoke to him about and. It is what I refer to as is a big picture investing, meaning some of some of the biggest wins I've had in my career were ones that took a while to play out. And and it felt almost as though it was like prey that I had been stalking for years. Right. They they often came from um, periods of long thought, periods of long contemplation and over time, just kind of coming to this conclusion of, you know, and every single every single trade has been different. And if this is too ethereal, you can just tell me and I'll, I'll try to bring it back down to earth. But um, where you're looking at this problem and you're really thinking about it for a long time and you sort of set out these parameters of, OK, when I see this and this happening, I'm going to make sure that I have the courage to act on it because this is the way that I see it. And if it goes against me, I'll back out of it. A good example of this grant was 
for years and years, I was wondering when would be a good time to get back into gold or gold miners. And for a variety of different reasons, I had come to the conclusion that I wanted to take a real big shot at gold after the Fed hiked for the first time. And I had I built out the parameters of the trade. And one of the parameters was if gold is positive, the two following trading days after the Fed hikes for the first time, I'm going to go in with both hands. And the logic at the time was, you know, the, 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 the line on Wall Street, you heard it on CNBC literally every day. When interest rates go up, gold falls, right? And that's a really funny take because that is a horrifically incomplete historical view of the of the movements of right. gold. <laughs> but uh, right, nonetheless, that was the that was the diatribe at the time. That was the that was the line, the party line. And so it just it it seemed like a perfect trade opportunity for me to kind of sell the news. Um, sure enough, end of 2015, I believe, was it 2015 or 2016 when they hiked for the first time? 15, yeah. Yeah, 15. Yeah. And then right after that, gold was positive the first two trading days. Gold went on a 25% rally. We made about 100, 110% on the gold miners. Um, I've had plenty I've gotten wrong. But the reason I bring that up is because any time I've had these long thought out big picture trades, I've never lost. Some have had various you know, percentages of wins. Um, and Hugh and I talked a bit about that and he agreed he, he had a, he had a little bit different spin on it, but kind of same basic construct to it. Um, now bringing it forward to today, one of the things that I've been saying to myself really over the last decade is when inflation kicks in in earnest, do not hesitate that that is the beginning of the unwinding. Um, now that is certainly happening and I catch myself continuing to, you know, continuing to question that and to rip that apart and wonder if that's the, the correct way to go. So it's a two part question. A, do you incorporate that kind of thought into your investing? Do you kind of see it like that where you have these short term trade ideas and investment ideas and these long term, you know, bigger themes, if you will? And B, do you agree with that sentiment? And if you do, do you think that we're there? So actually, it's like a three-part, <laughs> three-part. I you know, want to get your investors' take on that type of big-picture thinking and whether you're a fan of it or not. And then also as it pertains to the underlying thesis, do you think that the beginning of inflation is the beginning of the end? Well, I think I think the first thing to do, my friend Tony Deaton says to me, yeah, the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. And, he, and he's absolutely right. Right, so so we we have to separate investing from speculating. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's really important to do that because because people people who talk about investing with a short term uh, time frame, it's not really investing, as I see. It. And obviously, this is this is personal preference. So I, I just in, in terms of answering the question, I want to make sure I'm clear with um, with how I think about these things. So so for me. Investing and speculating are two very different things. And I think when you're investing, the, the secret to me of, of investing is, is finding something that you want to own, um, that you, you, you're happy to own for, for a, a decent period of time. I mean, you, you, your frame is going gonna, is gonna to change, but, but it's, it's certainly not something you're buying looking to flip. It's not something you're buying looking for a catalyst that's going to give you an exit. It's something that you... You've identified whether it be a business or whether it be whether it be gold, whether it be a commodity that, that you've decided that you know I, I want to hold this, and then it becomes about finding an, an entry point that allows you to to be wrong and comfortable for as long as possible. 
And so when you, when you talk about, um, when you talk about, when you talk about doing X because of the Fed, uh, the Fed move at a given particular time, I don't think too much about those in advance. I, I will think about it and think, you know, you know, this could be the perfect time to do it, but I'm still going to, I'm, I'm still going to look at, the, the, the kind of bigger picture when that event happens. Because if these are things that you want to hold for a period of time, then you don't have to do it that first day. You know, you, you can let the Fed um, news sink in. You can look at the reaction. You can say, okay, has the price uh, reacted how I thought it would? If it hasn't, can I figure out why not? Have I got something wrong or is it just the market is delayed in understanding what this means. And oftentimes that is the case. You know, we've seen recently a lot of times markets rally um, <laughs> to the bewilderment of many after after uh, Fed press conferences or interest rate moves. We've seen the market that day go up and people are saying, well, wow, I thought it was going to go down. And the next day they crater because people actually have the time to figure it out. So that there, there are, I, I don't think there are any – hard and fast rules in terms of this is how you do it. Because mm -hmm. if there were, that would have been arbitraged out of the markets years ago. I think right. it's important to have principles. It's important to have your own rules that you try and stick to, but you also need flexibility and you need to be able to evaluate a constantly shifting um, field of play. So, you know, I, 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 whilst I think it's important to say, okay, if, X happens, that will be the catalyst. I think you have to have the flexibility and humility to say, okay, we're here, X has happened, do I just blindly buy this? And and, and we convince ourselves that it's the brave thing to do. We convince ourselves that, well, no matter what happens, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to be talked out of it. But there may be some very good reasons to to hold, you know, to, to just, just hang on a second, to wait and take a breath and, and pause for 24 hours. And, and, and you know, all of this is to, is to demonstrate why this is something that is a very – it's a very difficult discipline, investing. Um, trading is, is a, likewise, is a very difficult discipline, but it's a very different kind of discipline. It's, it's much more the managing of emotions um, and to your point about doing something with both hands if such and such happens. If you're trading or speculating – Absolutely. Then, then you know this is this is much more short term, and and you know every minute counts in terms of you getting the moves you want. So I I, I say to everybody I speak to that understand: Are you a speculator or are you an investor? And if you're a speculator, you know there are ten books you should read, and if you're an investor, there are ten completely different books you should read <laughs> to try and understand the discipline of of what you're setting out to be. But a lot of it comes down to mindset. If you have a high tolerance for emotional pain and volatility, um, and you have a, 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 an ability to, to keep calm amidst things going against you, you're a trader. And if, you, if you're more methodical and if you're, you, you prefer to, to do an awful lot of work to get to a, a, a period where you're uh, – sorry, a place where you're comfortable with a certain investment over time and you're, and you're willing to be wrong and you're willing to constantly reevaluate your case – you're an investor. And I think that's the first thing that everybody needs to understand about themselves. But of course, we, we're, we're now, I think, coming to the tail end of a period where everybody thinks they wanted to be a trader. And being a trader and, and winging things around and buying the dip has worked really, really well. And so there are an awful lot of people out there who aren't traders who've come to believe 
of themselves to be such. And to bring it back to your point about inflation, inflation changes all of that. It's changed what the Fed's able to do. It's changed the nature of their jawboning to markets. It's changed holding periods. It's changed the way people value discounted cash flows. It's changed interest rates. It's changed the price of money. It's changed everything. And is that a set of changes that's going to turn around and go away again quickly? Some people still believe yes. Some people believe that you know, the markets are telling you, well, this is it. We're at peak hawkishness now, and inflation's going to moderate, and the Fed's going to change course and cut, and you know, the, the future is predetermined. Um, I just don't think it's that simple. So inflation changes an awful lot of things, and it, it may well change people's understanding of whether they're traders or speculators. And, and I think actively going out to try and understand that yourself before the market explains it for you in a very painful way is, is kind of step one. Yeah, and, and, and I, you, you, you kind of – see, this is why you're, 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 that's why you're a good interviewer, man. You, you kind of made my point for me or, or, or illustrated what I was trying to say better than I, I was able to in the sense that um, – if you look at I, what I was saying is is setting up, uh, for lack of a better term, maybe like crutches, and and meaning that it is it is due to my respect of the market. One of the things that I've reviewed, one of the things I've observed over time, is markets have a tendency to to wear you down, to erode you over time. It kind of reminds me of you know water running over rock, right? You don't see. You don't see it happening in real time, but you can take a step back and look at the Grand Canyon and realize it's a pretty, you know, pretty powerful force. Um, but it seems to to wear market participants down over a period of time and typically ends up with those market participants in exactly the wrong place at precisely the wrong time. And, you know, setting up these crutches to make sure that I don't wander off the path, if that makes sense. Um, and to keep my eyes out for the potential challenges. And, and you said something um, that I thought was amazing because it's something that I've watched. And I've watched several people on Twitter. I've watched it happen with people on, in, in, in the journalist, in journalism fields, um, uh, on different TV shows. That it, it's amazed me as this cycle has gone on. Stock analysis has turned into a picture, right? It, it, by and large, it is just a chart. And everybody is a chartist. Jim Cramer's got his chartist up every single day on it. I don't watch it anymore, but I see the highlights. You know, I, you, you hear people, it's almost become like that Bloomberg snapshot picture of the chart. That's, you know, you ask somebody, what's your research? You know, and they just slap up a chart. Um, yeah. It's like the death of fundamental investing. Have you ever seen it? We, 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 yeah, I lived through it, but I wasn't running money in it. We, we, was that what it was like in, in, in 99, 2000? Was everything just baked down to a chart? There was no more fundamental analysis? Yeah, I mean, in, in many ways. Um, it, it, but but we have to, I think we have to be fair to ourselves as people and understand that the, 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 the history of mankind has been – the the constant striving to make our lives easier and to have us do less work right and and right. And, and to uh, that's basically it right every 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 um, you know breakthrough has ended up making our lives easier so we we are predisposed to doing less work and having things simplified and 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 that's what we've set out to do as a species so of course with with investing 
as soon as you can boil something down to a chart and you can show people a picture that makes your case for you, like the old song says, it's worth a thousand words. So why bother writing the words when you can say, hey, look at this, guys? Um, and there are plenty of people that go, well, I either look at this chart, which is telling me something I believe is guaranteed to happen and act on it, or I could read a whole load of reports and I could do this and I could do that, and that's an awful lot more work. So, um, uh, but, but, the, but the point the point I want to come on to is, is that the last period that we've lived through where markets have gone largely in one direction and, and this idea of buying the dip has proven to be right has meant that, you know, value investing where you, you do have to do your work and you do have to spend an awful lot of time trying to find dollar bills for sale for 50 cents um, has become out of fashion because no one had the patience. No one wanted to wait for those things to, to unfold. I mean, look at look at uranium. Look at you know, guys I know have been investing in uranium for years, based on the fundamentals of that business. Talking about well, how there will be a need for uranium. Um, it, it's it's if you if you look at a lot more things than a chart, you look at usage. You look at um, where they're phasing out plants, where you look at where it's being constructed, you look at the, the supply of the commodity, it's obvious that we will need, absent some kind of cold fusion breakthrough, we will need more uranium going through. The price will have to go higher. Now, if you did that analysis 10 years ago, you would have come up with an incredibly compelling investment case. But until the last year, you'd have been orphaned. And so it's not sexy to, to, to be a value investor and to do all that work and then to have the market not confirm your hard work and your brilliance right away. But that's what these guys do. They, 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 they build as, as cast iron an investment case as they can. They know it's going to take a while. And, you know, Jim Grant, the, the great Jim Grant, said this perfectly when he said, you know, the secret to investing is having the market agree with you later on. And that's really what it comes down to for these guys is you, you, you look in places where nobody wants to go because it's not sexy and it's not moving around, which uranium is a perfect example of that. You construct a case. You construct a, a, a real understanding of supply and demand of the, of the um, industry itself, the major players, blah, blah, blah. And this is already a lot more than looking at a chart. And you position yourself accordingly and you wait for the market to agree with you. And sure enough, that happened um, Earlier this year, we saw a tremendous spike in uranium. Uh, and, and at that point, if you're one of those value investors, are you waiting for your case to be proven or are you waiting for the market to agree with you? I mean, A, B, or, or C, a mixture of both. And so you have that comfort that even if you're wrong, there is still some fundamental value to what you're buying. If you looked at a chart of Peloton, for example, and gone into lockdown and said, well, everyone's going to be buying Peloton bikes and this thing is going to clean up. Guess what? You were right. But you were right because an awful lot of people had that same short-term idea. And here we are with Peloton shares down 70 or 80% from, from the highs because the fundamentals don't outlast the speculative impetus that you get at the beginning of that. You know, same with Netflix, same with all these kind of darling technology lockdown stocks that are all between 70 and 90% below their highs. So it, it's, um, it, it's not easy, right? As, as, again, going back to my friend Tony Dean, he said, as he said so beautifully, he said, it's simple, but it's not easy. 
And I think that's the crux of it. It, it, It's simple to figure out what is valuable because that's really what this is all about. When people confuse price and value um, because one doesn't always reflect the other. But if you can buy something that's valuable at the right price, then you'll do okay over time. But if you pay the wrong price for something, then there's a very high possibility that, that it's not going to work out so well for you. Yeah, no, that's a perfect way to perfect way to sum that up. So a slight pivot here, <clears throat> but sort of along the same lines. Um, moving over to energy policy a little bit. And the reason why I wanted to ask you this question specifically is because, you know, you're you're a bit of a you're a bit of an international man of mystery. Right. Um, <laughs> you're 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 a you're a natural born Aussie, but you spent time living in Asia. I believe you've you've worked and lived in the States, too. Right. At, at a certain uh, point. Well, well, I'm actually a natural born Brit. Uh, oh, I'm a naturalized. That's Aussie. right. So that's I'm right. Even, okay. even more mysterious. I'm even more mysterious. See, that's what I'm saying. This is I mean, this is uh, we've got an enigma wrapped in a mystery here um, and, and now living in Cambridge. So you've been all over the place. And and I just thought you would be. Um, I I I know that I don't need to tell you this, but I think the best way to describe the journal or the the media slash political landscape in the United States would probably just be hyperbole. Um, I think that kind of sums everything up. And there's sort of two different camps. Obviously, um, you you look at the current. Uh, energy situation and there are those that would be considered to be on the left that think that what some people are calling ineptitude um, and ridiculous energy policy is a conspiracy that it, that, that it's all intentional um, you know people on the left of the argument are blaming gas stations which seems as equally ridiculous to me um, and my fear all along is that what you see unfolding in energy markets is complete ineptitude. Um, it's, you know, 15 years of fundamentals essentially not mattering and, and people going to sleep or people, you know, shocker, those elected officials do not have good understandings about financial markets. But when you look at the at U.S. energy policy specifically, um, a, what do you think is the, you know, is it conspiracy? I mean, I have a pretty good idea that you're going to say it's not. Is it just gross ineptitude? Is it somewhat intentional to drive up the price of oil to spur the conversion to, to, to green or slash renewable energies? Um, and again, I thought it was ineptitude. And then I saw a, a cell phone video that was taken of a little, I don't know if you saw this, but when they were doing their climate meetings in Europe, there, there was somebody that got up close to the group and took a little cell phone video of Macron kind of pulling Biden aside and trying to explain to him that, that the OPEC did not have a bunch of spare capacity. Did you see that video? I did. Yeah, I did. OK. Yeah. okay. And, and I sat there and I went um, the, the way the conversation unfolded and the look on Biden's face and the, the tenor of the conversation led me to pull away from that and go, Holy smokes, it's pretty much exactly like you thought. They absolutely do not have their hands, at least on a fundamental basis, around this problem. Do you agree with that? And then if not, what is your perspective? How do you explain the the, the seemingly kindergarten level of understanding of the energy markets and a complete misunderstanding 
of how to deal with the issue. How, how do you process that? Do you, again, is it pure ineptitude? Is, is there a layer of it that is intentional? Kind of, kind of give us your outsider's view of that. No, I, I'm, I'm very similar to you in that I, I believe it is mostly driven by ineptitude um, and a lack of understanding. You know, anecdotally, and again, I don't know this to be true, but I, I remember reading it at the time when Jennifer Granholm, the, 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 I used the inverted common energy secretary of the United States was given her first press conference. And, you know, she was asked about the price of oil and she said she'd have to get back to the reporters on that. <laughs> and, you know, if, if you're the U.S. Energy Secretary, you would think you'd have like a, a live ticker of the price of oil above your desk so you knew what was going on every day. But so, so I think there's a great deal of ineptitude. But there, there's another aspect to this, that, which is which is perhaps more sinister um, more nebulous and, and much harder to try and handicap. And that is, as my good friend Doomberg has coined this beautiful phrase about, you know, in the, in the battle of physics versus platitudes, physics is undefeated. And he's absolutely right about that. However, we are governed by platitude. And so power in all its shapes and forms has become so much more important now than it, than it has been before, seemingly, and, 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 and being in power has become the ends. It hasn't, the ends, power hasn't become a tool by which to, to get your ends fulfilled. Power has become the end. And so alongside ineptitude, you think to yourself, well, the way we're going to get in power is playing to the green base, and we're going to, we're going to play to that that caucus and, and we are going to stick with policies that get us the green vote because we can feel that green is the way a lot of people are turning. And so you, you end up making decisions that aren't rooted in sound policy, but are rooted in, okay, where, 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 is the, where the polls tell us we're going we're gonna to pick up votes. Now, you find yourself in the position that the US is where you know, you've, 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 you've put a line through the Keystone pipeline simply because votes um, and you see oil prices where they are, and rather than reverse your your policy, which would be at the stroke of a pen, would provide some relief for, for gas prices. Before you'll do that, because you're worried about the avoid the votes you'll lose, you'll go to Venezuela and you'll go to Iran and you'll go and shake the hand of a man whose hand you swore you'd never shake in an attempt to beg them to produce more oil. So. Um, I think it's ineptitude, but I think that the kind of sinister side of it is that that choices are being made for an entire population based on how it plays to what is deemed currently an important uh, lobby within that population. And I think that's incredibly dangerous. Look, I think at the end of the day, you'd be hard pushed to find a single person that doesn't want the earth to be looked after it's our planet right i mean there there are people even in sort of the poorest parts of africa or, or asia who will throw away trash not because they don't care about the environment but that's that's the option they have um you know we've 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 come a long way in the west from kind of throwing litter out of car windows now to to really doing things to in, increase our environmental awareness and, and safeguard the earth but it's coming at the cost of the current generation, we've decided that we are we're going to protect the earth for future generations, and to hell with the people that live here at the moment. And that is plays great to a certain lobby, but it doesn't work out so well 
for right now, for example, everybody that, that is on the bread line struggling to afford to put gas in their cars to go to work. And so it, it's fine to have ideas about the earth. I mean, I, I, I want the earth to be as, as to, to, to last as long as it possibly can. I'll, I'll do everything I can within my power to, to make sure the earth is great. But, but we, we are at a point where people are being asked to sacrifice not simple things like, hey, don't throw your trash out the car window, keep it in the car and throw it away in a, in a trash can when you get to the end of your journey. But no, you, you're going to have to um, reduce your family's standard of living to, to make sure that we don't have a pipeline bringing cheap energy to the country. And at the end of the day, society is powered by energy. And until you have a solution, a green solution that you can flick a switch, turn off, the energy that the, the world uses now and switch it to green with no degradation of living standards, what are we doing, right? I mean, it's it's very foolish decisions are being made uh, because of the, the votes they might get. And, and once they're proven to be problematic in the short term, there's a there's a refusal to change course, a refusal to, to come out in public and say, hey, Look, we were wrong about this. We're going to we're going to change things. Instead, you get this farcical situation that, that Granholm and the others were talking about the other week, where they're telling <clears throat> energy companies they should be investing more, uh, even though they're at the same time they're telling them we're going to put you out of business in five years if we can. We want you to invest more now. Or, or you know, the president tweeting about gas station owners are the bad guys here. When when the truth is they make one point four percent profits on on the on the gas they pump. So it, it, the whole thing is ludicrous, frankly, but it is rooted in policy and power and a, and a desire for votes. And, you know, a real leader who had a, a mandate would be able to say, right, here's what we're going to do to alleviate these problems in the short term. I, I'm sympathetic to the green lobby. I understand what you need. We are not willy-nilly going to go and destroy the earth. But right now, for the sake of the entire society, we need to come up with a way to provide cheap energy. And so we are going to change, look at, relook at permits and leases, and we are going to relook at the Keystone Pipeline. And, you know, trust that people will understand that right now it makes more sense for more people to try and bring the cost of energy down than it does to arbitrarily pick a number and say, well, by 2030 we're going to be carbon you know, net zero emissions and then try and find a way to do that. I mean, it's the whole thing is is backwards, and it, and it comes from, as I say, part ineptitude, and part this belief that that power is the end rather than the means by which to achieve your ends. It it also sorry, long winded answer. Sorry. No, I I mean that's I I mean unfortunately that I think those are the kind of answers that are required to you know, tackle something like this that is such a head scratcher. And 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 I I think there's a big part of what we're discussing. That, you know, getting back to our biblical or ecclesiastical references, right? There is nothing new under the sun. None, none of this is new. Um, having said that, it does seem to be, to me, at least through a historical lens, this does seem to be somewhat historically acute or, or, or more urgent or more ridiculous than would have been in the past. In, in the past, it seems as though. Um, you know, like I said, hyperbole and political fields is nothing new, but there seemed to be in the past, at least the necessity 
for an underpinning of reality, right? Or, or an intention to deal with real problems. Um, when I look at today, it just seems like it is all anecdotal and all hyperbole. And fact is, it, fact is solely determined by the tribe that you're a member of. Um, well, well, Zach, I mean, just if, but think about this, right? This idea of reality. Um, yeah, the, the world has been embracing ever more for the last number of years virtual reality. And so <laughs> there has been a move away from reality, right? We all want this augmented reality, this, this, this world to immerse ourselves in, and the, and the metaverse is the next phase of that, supposedly, that isn't real. And so if, if that's the aim, if the desire is to, is, to, is to live in a, not in a real world, but in an artificially, quote-unquote, perfect world, you can see that translating into politics. If that's what people want, they want to put goggles on their faces and get away from what's real and live in a, a virtual reality, is it any wonder that policy is, is following that? Um, it, it, it's no great surprise to me, sadly. No, but it's, it is frightening. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, we, we're, you know, you're uh, like, and I, and I, I think I got that from Doomberg as well. And, and he and I discussed this on our show, which it, it, it does scare the living heck out of me because unfortunately things like energy or heating your home or driving your car, they really don't care about your political ideology, right? It's no. not something that the fed can print over. You either have it or you don't. And the, the, you know, the seriousness of the, and, and I think the a perfect example and this will help me pivot a little bit over into the energy as an investment part of the discussion with you. Um, a perfect example of this is there's a little, and I don't want to name the name, but there's a, there's a, it's not all that little, but, but small to medium, mid, small cap type company, a Canadian E&P company that we own. Um, thing has a pristine balance sheet, no debt. Um, at, at, at anywhere around current oil prices today, uh, it'll, it's trading for about a billion dollar market cap. It'll be thrown out somewhere between 500 to 550 million in free cash flow. you know, as, as cheap of a company as I've ever seen in my career. Um, and it is pulled back in the last month or so, uh, about 35%. And I, and I was reading an analysis of why this happened and they were talking about, well, you know, energy oil prices could have topped and we could see oil going back to 70. And, you know, that would mean that you got another 25% downside in this company. And I'm just laughing while I'm reading this because it was all based again on a chart. Right. And then it was an explanation of the chart and the, and the, and the conclusion was to sell. Okay, well, what these people failed to realize is that this company is 100% hedged at $90 oil, right? So this pullback in oil prices that is the reason to sell this thing has not impacted their bottom line or their expected free cash flow a cent. And yet it's being used to fire, you know, that's the rationale being used to fire sale these things. And I'm not complaining as every investment goes through periods of irrationality. Have you ever seen and, – and then, and then for our listeners, because I know you and I know this, but just to re-illustrate this, um, when, when I talk to our clients about this, one of the things I bring up is if you look back to 2014, the last time you had oil trading at these levels, first of all, that gas was nowhere close to these levels. But the last time you had oil at these levels and that gas substantially cheaper – XOP, that, that ETF that tracks, I know you're familiar, but that tracks mm-hmm. the energy sector, the S&P 500, it was trading between 320 and 330, right? Today, XOP is trading right around 125, 
right? Have you ever seen a bigger disconnect from the prices of securities and the underlying fundamentals than you do in the current energy space? Well, I mean, this is this is basically the inverse of the tech space, right? The tech space has been where it really wants to be, and there's been just as big a disconnect, but at the other end, right, in the other direction. So these prices have been wildly overvalued, but that's what people have been interested in. That's what a a generation of speculators have wanted to chase, and and it comes back to our our conversation about value. You know, being able to buy the company you're talking about. Understanding what you understand about it gives you the ability when it does have these sell-offs to know, well, okay, the price is being impacted, but not the value. I own something of value, and so I have my time horizon. And yeah, in the short term, it's it's painful, but here it comes down as a manager to having clients who understand what you do, why you do it, how you do it, and they understand that you know the things we own are valuable. It's not about the price. So you know, these disconnects happen from time to time, but what you what you tend to happen is ultimately things revert to the value. And 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 for energy companies like the one you've just described, that means a higher price. And for Netflix, it means a much lower price because the value wasn't there. So, you know, this the changes, and I can't stress this enough, the changes that inflation – as a meaningful opponent for central banks make to how we invest slash speculate uh, cannot be understated. They really can't because the whole way through this, um, the one thing that would potentially hamstring the central banks was inflation. You know, they, they, they paid lip service that we're trying to get inflation to 2%. We want to get inflation up. There isn't enough inflation. And so they kept doing what they were doing and a lot of people said, you know, you're playing with fire here. This is going to backfire horribly. At no point in that process did they have to deal with 8% inflation. Now that they do, it ties one of their hands behind their back. So they, they can't just say, well, we're going to do this and that. Because if they do, if they cut rates again, well, it's going to have a negative effect on inflation. If they buy bonds again, the chances are it's going to have a negative effect on inflation. So now it's a case of, how do we come up with a narrative that allows us to declare victory against inflation um, that gives us the ability to, to, to cut rates and do all the things we do to stimulate when we know that the, the economy is in trouble? And you might find that that is, you know, inflation moderates to, let's say CPI moderates to 5%. Well, at that point, which it's likely to do at some point, simply because, you know, base effects and what have you, that then gives them the cover to say, well, you know what, inflation's heading back where we think it's going to be. Our forecasts are that we're going to get to two, so we're going to cut rates. Now, that might have worked previously, but if they cut rates this time around and inflation doesn't go from five to two, it goes from five back up to six or seven or eight again, then they're in real trouble and their credibility is shot. So, so we've entered the, the phase of this whole process where – if I do X, Y happens is no longer guaranteed, not, not just for central banks, but for investors. And that's a very tricky period. So all the kind of self-directed investors who've been sitting at home, for all the self-directed investors who've been sitting at home speculating and day trading and buying all these stocks and, and largely having things their own way for such a long time while 
pulling money from professional money managers and giving it to to ETFs to manage and just putting it in the market to save fees, there's been justification for that. But in the kind of markets we're in now, and we're likely to be in for the next who knows how long, um, trying to pay fewer fees might turn out to be a, a net negative decision. So we're entering a very, very different phase. And everything that's been learned over the last 10 years is going to prove largely useless to most people. Um, everything you've learned over 40 years will stand you in good stead. Everything you've read about the last 200 years will be hugely valuable. But if your understanding and your investment style is built over the last 10 years and you don't adapt that, then I think you're in for some pretty strong headwinds. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree with you. Um, one thing that has happened to me over the course of this cycle is I have far greater, and, and I say this with the scars to prove it, uh, and and in an effort to be, you know, fully transparent and and with the required humility, I have learned to have a much greater respect for central banks and and the and the influence that they wield and their ability. To control things, because for me, and you don't have to agree, but for me, uh, navigating the last cycle or this cycle has been especially frustrating is I felt there were many times on a fundamental or economic level that things started to sway the way that that I thought they would go, or I thought that I had a good reading on the way things were going. And I continued to be blown away uh, and and surprised at the central bank's ability to squash typical uh, macroeconomic signals, right? Um, the, the, the way we began to refer to it here is, you know, financial zero gravity, right? How they were, you know, in, 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 in a zero gravity environment, you're not, you're not afraid of taking a big leap across the, you know, uh, matrix style jump from a building top to a or building a roof of a building to the, to another roof of a building, because, Right. There's zero gravity. There's no consequences if you if you fall short. Um, and like you said, you know, when I see inflation becoming an issue and, and subsequent interest rate increases to, to counteract that, that to me is like a return to to gravity uh, in the situation. Right. R rules are being reinstituted. Um, and then I was listening to the interview that you did with James Aiken, and I loved his approach to this because it really typified the way that we're looking at it. Um you know, I think my listeners have known and we've been pounding the table on it. And I think we've discussed it with you before of the tremendous opportunity that we see in the commodity space, in the energy space. Um, and while James was on your show, he seemed to echo that. Yet at the same time, he did it with such a humility, uh, you know, addressing all of the different ways that that might be the wrong look. Right. He talked about, hey, you know, you've seen insider selling. Um, of some of these companies. And he talked about, you know, just different ways that that outlook could be wrong. And that was so intellectually appealing to me because again, the minute I hear somebody, you know, um, counteracting or, 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 you know, giving the, giving the antithesis, uh, the flip side of their investment approach, how they could go wrong. You know, that's when my ears perk up and I think, okay, this person's worth listening to. Um, they're approaching with that subsequent or that, that required humility uh, and pause. Um, but one of the things that it really left me wrestling with is I, I feel as though, and again, this may be wrong and maybe I'm mischaracterizing this, 
But I look at the world right now, and to me, it seems fairly binary on the investment side. Either this energy situation and commodity situation to me is the thing that breaks this loose, for lack of a better term, right? Breaks this grip that central banks have had in terms of controlling every aspect of, you know, monetary flows and asset prices and all these things. Or, and I, and this is a possibility as well. Again, I've learned this painfully over this cycle. Uh, or they will figure out a way to stick save this too and, and resume um, this authoritarian like control that they seem to have on markets. So if you could, I'd like you to comment on all of that in the sense that do you think I'm overplaying the role that they've had on things and B um, do you think that this is something in the current construct in the current environment that they're going to be able to stick save? Or do you think this is the thing that finally breaks things loose and that, you know, financial gravity or financial reality play out? Well, I, I, I think, I think the situation we have now, the constraints they're operating under vis-a-vis high inflation um, and huge energy constraints change the nature of of the fight they're in. Um, Because now it's not just about how how do we convince people that we're serious? How do we convince people that interest rates are going to stay low forever? How do we convince people that it's okay to borrow money? It's okay to buy um, infinite duration assets. It's okay to, to roll your sleeves up and, and get animal spirits going again. So I think the nature of the battle has changed because what they've now got to try and do is convince people that inflation isn't going to be around forever and that you, know, you, you don't have to fear inflation. We don't, we don't want those inflation expectations becoming unanchored is the, is the phrase everyone keeps using. So the, the nature of the battle is a very, very different one. Unfortunately, their primary tool is the same, i.e. interest rates and and lowering and raising them. Yes, of course, they have um, have, uh, uh, QE and asset purchase programs, Um, but asset purchase programs don't necessarily help when there's an inflationary problem to face. So it kind of removes that for now from from their arsenal. So what what are we left with? We're left with... um, raising interest rates to try and get inflation under control, which will have an impact on asset prices, as we've seen this year. We just closed the worst half of of the year for the S&P 500 since 1970. So clearly that's having an effect. Um, But but at what point do you worry about asset prices? Because if you look at the chart of the S&P, we're still in nosebleed territory. And what we've seen so far is is nothing, really. And I think a, a controlled demolition of asset prices would be wonderful for the Federal Reserve. If they could keep markets eroding, let's say, rather than crashing, you know, look back at, at what happened in Japan, you know, from the peak of the Nikkei on, on December 31st, 89, uh, it never really crashed. It just went down for 20 years and re-rated. And I think if the Fed could get some kind of result like that, as opposed to a crash, a disorderly event, that would be a huge help for them. Now, obviously, they don't want that to happen, but they have to get these inflation expectations under control. And maybe prices do it for them. Maybe there is a, you know, a, a ceasefire in Ukraine. Maybe the oil price comes off. But ultimately, we're left with a problem that the, the, the drive for ESG has, has turned into a real problem, i.e. lack of 
capex spent in that space. Um, you know, the, 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 we've already seen what happens. There, there's threats of windfall taxes, there's threats of price caps. So you've kind of opened your kimono and you've shown people exactly what you're going to do, which is hardly going to incentivize energy companies um, to to kind of go gangbusters to, to invest more money in this stuff. So it, it's really problematic now. And, and that's why this inflation is, is such a pernicious enemy for these guys. Um, and we've seen recently, we've had a perfect example of this from, from the Reserve Bank of Australia, you know, who, who in October stepped away from pegging the three-year point on the curve um, without saying anything about it. They just, having committed to peg it at 10 basis points, they just walked away once they came under too much pressure. And rates went from 10 basis points to 75 basis points in a matter of days. Um, we've also seen the governor of the RBA, uh, Dr. Philip Lowe, apologize on national TV for them having gotten things wrong. So all of a sudden, central bankers are becoming human again, are becoming prone to mistakes. And they're now trying to continue this process of jawboning markets around and telling markets where they need to be and what they need to listen to and how they need to behave. Only it's it's not working this time because there is something to fight now, which can be seen. You know, we can see the CPI print. More importantly, we can see the PPI prints, which are, you know, from anywhere from the teens to high thirty percent across the developed world. So, in, you know, producer prices are in, in ridiculous levels. We've seen German uh, trade deficit today for the first time since the nineties, based around energy. So, material things are happening, which are changing. Um, economies around the world are changing consumer behavior and that in a normally functioning world would require a change of behavior on the part of the federal reserve they don't really have the means to change other than raise interest rates so what does that leave and and that brings into play things like capital controls you know things like um yield curve control which is being tried in japan and again is coming under tremendous pressure now so central banks, having been omnipotent and having been something to fear, are still something to be wary of. But as we saw in 1992, when Soros famously punched the Bank of England on the nose, they're not absolutely infallible. Um, they just happen to have been infallible for the last couple of decades. And that's given both them a false sense of confidence and investors a sense of trepidation, which is kind of at the edges in places like Australia and places like Japan starting to melt away. So this next phase is not going to be straightforward for the central banks. And I would I would suggest that they will have to come up with new tools. And those tools are going to be um, restrictive to capital. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I, it's very much the way that I see it as well. I, I you know, I, I do think that this is, I think this is stretching them, and I personally think that they're it's they're going to have a very difficult time keeping the lid on this whole scenario. Yet at the same time, I'm going ahead pretty sober minded because you got to know they're going to pull out every tool in the book, right? Um, they're I mean, at least that's the way I see it. Would you? I mean, they're they're going to throw everything at this they possibly have, and I think it. I, it's really hard for me to sit back. You know, I, yield curve control, in my opinion, price caps, price controls, all that stuff to me, to me, that it only exacerbates the problem in the long run. Would you agree? Yeah, no, no, of course. And, and they always do. Right. But, but they've been tried before and they'll be tried again because they seem like 
an important short-term fix. The same way windfall taxes seem like a great idea against energy companies and, and price caps on oil seem like a great idea when you are concerned about power. Um, if you're concerned about the reality, let, let's be real for a moment, the, the right way and, and frankly the only fair way to deal with this situation is a redistribution of wealth from the people who've gotten insanely wealthy over these last 10 years through these policies um, to the people that haven't. And, and that's, that's either going to be a choice that's made or it's going to be an outcome of social unrest and, and people whose, whose lifestyles haven't kept up, um, who haven't been looked after because their assets have gone up because they don't own assets, but now they're, they're must-haves, they're about food and energy and shelter, are unaffordable for them. Well, look, I mean, th there is a, a very simple and, and an appropriate remedy to that, and that is to say to all the people who, you know, all the CEOs who, who've had all these stock options and have made hundreds of millions of dollars, say, you know what, you've got to give some of that back. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take some of that away from you, and we're going to redistribute it to the people who can't afford to eat. Now, that, that won't happen like that. Certainly, I wouldn't imagine so. But the stock market going down and people who own assets being forced to swallow losses while they try to get inflation under control to try and get food prices and energy prices down, it's tough to complain about that. It's tough to, to, to sit there, be neutral as someone that owns assets and say, yeah, you know what, that's probably about right. But take a look at the chart in the S&P 500. Look where you were five years ago and look where you are now. Um, and if you want to tell me that, that giving half of that back isn't something the Fed will absolutely consider if it stops the vast majority of the population that didn't amass that wealth from burning down institutional buildings, then I think you're whistling past the graveyard. You know, we, we, we are not in the environment we were in this time pre-COVID. Uh, we're just not. The world has changed, and the big change is inflation. And, and not only does it change how people manage their own personal finances, it changes how they look at their elected representatives. It changes how elected representative looks at corporation and profits. It changes everything. And we just haven't had it for 40 years, so we don't really understand that unless, we've, unless we were alive and, and, con uh, uh, and cognizant in the 70s. Or we've read history. Um, inflation changes everything, and and we have it, and it's a real problem, and it will have to be dealt with one way or another. Now, I know you're a busy guy, so I will wrap this up. You've been far too kind with your time, but but listening to you, um, listening to that answer from you makes me think of uh, one of your co-hosts, Luke Roman. I've had him on the show several times as well, and you know he's been saying for as long as I can remember. Uh, or as long as I've been listening to him, that, it, that this ends at a point where, you know, the Fed has to pick. Do you want to bring inflation under control or do you want to crash the market and the economy? And one of the things that I've really come around to and, and, and really agree with him is that I think more than ever, the market and the economy are correlated, um, you know, where where gains from the market are driving economic spending, consumer spending like never before. And and I think when you step back and look at the construct of the of the market as well as the economy it makes perfect sense, right? The the largest 
uh, generation in the history of the country, which also happens to be the most wealthy generation in the country, are all approaching retirement ages. And the disproportionate number of them are relying on their investment portfolios to provide retirement income. And therefore, there is a massive link between asset price performance uh, and that and, and, and the performance of the underlying economy. Um, you know, I, so what I'd, I'd like to ask you is, is there any way that they can do this? Because uh, I don't know if I've heard you speak to this. I've got a suspicion of what you'd say. But um, is there any way that the Fed can do this, can, can re, you know, re-engineer, reverse engineer this transfer of assets back to the back to the the misfortunate or just rebalance that? Can they do that without crashing the economy? Right. Because back. But if you go back and look at periods of times, like you said, if we're historically read and, and understand what's happened in prior periods, um, you know, I, in my opinion, you go back and look at the 70s. The market and the economy, yeah, they were linked, but not anywhere near, you know, the financialization that's occurred over the past 40 years is pretty breathtaking. Um, so do you think that they can bring things back in line without putting the economy through substantial pain? Or is there, is that, are we at that point where the only way out is pain? Well, look, think about how little pain we've had right. over the last 40 years, right? I mean, if you think about it, it's been a one-way ticket. We had we had eighty-seven, um, which was a short-term shock, but there was there were miles fewer people involved in markets at that time. Had them had their money in markets, so it, it was a much more localized pain. Um, we had the, the the tech bubble burst in the late nineties, which was again much more skewed towards the the, the rampant speculation that we saw in the dot-com bubble. We had the 01 recession, which was short and sharp. Then we had 2008, which was much more painful. And, and by then, an awful lot more people had been sucked into um, investing in, in the markets. But it also impacted housing, so it was much more broad. But you know, I've just gone back to the mid-'80s there and highlighted the kind of four or five periods of pain that we've had in those intervening almost 40 years. So can they do it without pain? I don't think so. But we're overdue some pain. And and was there a time when they could have done something about it? Sure. You know, if they'd have been proactive with interest rates and as markets were starting to get overheated and as asset prices were detaching from reality, there's always this this desire to start to say, oh, yeah, yeah, but we, you know, if you look at 2000, we're not in crazy bubble territory. And you, you've seen so many Federal Reserve governors saying, we don't see signs of a bubble yet, which implies that what they're doing is they're waiting right. for a bubble to clearly form to act. The simple way to do this is to, as this thing is going up, come out and say, listen, everything's going great. We're going to tick up the cost of money. We don't want to create a bubble. We don't want things to get out of hand. We don't want animal spirits to be unleashed. The economy is doing great. But we're gonna, you know, we're gonna raise a little bit when we can um, without derailing the economy. We're gonna keep the price of money fair. We're gonna give savers a crack. And you know what? We wouldn't have stock markets where they are now. The stock markets would be much lower. But you know what? The volatility would be removed. And and the the, the period we're about to go through, where in order to defeat inflation, you are gonna have to see asset prices lower and interest rates higher. Maybe we wouldn't have got here, and if we and if we had have got here, it would have been to a far 
less egregious extent. And so trying to cleanse the system again would have been far less painful. But the bed that we all lay in has been made for us, and we all have to lay in it now. And, and we, are beholden among, uh, uh, we are beholden on the decisions that are going to be made, not just by central bankers, but by policymakers, government, to try and, and, and bring this in for, for the, the least painful landing. But again, I come back to this idea about how important votes are. Um, and if you, if you subscribe to my theory that power has become the ends rather than the means through which to achieve your ends, then it's a whole new prism to look at how this might ultimately play out because people want to stay in power. And if you want to stay in power, you keep the most number of people happy. And is the most number of people those investing in the stock market actively, or is it the people who want to eat three meals a day and be able to drive to work? The answer is pretty simple. <laughs> it's that. So your, your problem from a power dynamic perspective is how do you get inflation under control? And it might well be that you have to bring asset prices significantly lower. Yeah, it's 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 amazing to me that it's gotten to this point. Like you said that, you know, I think back to the end of 2018 where Powell was trying to go down that road and just panicked in and reverse course. Yeah. And, you know, you're sitting there even at the time going, all right, Powell, well, if you don't do it now. And, and that's and that and that has been what has just made me pull my hair out of the absurdity of central bankers because you hear them talk and I think you summed it up perfectly. If you constantly keep giving the same answer over and over and over, and if you just take the next logical step, what it means is you're not going to get tough until there is the mother of all bubbles, right? Like right. that. But, that but, but, but think about it, right? It just let's do a thought experiment. If if Powell had said in 2018, we are willing to tolerate a market. If the, the S&P falls 35%, we're willing to tolerate that. You know what? It would never have fallen 35%. It would have fallen 30 maybe. And then everybody would have come in and bought down 30% thinking, well, the Fed's going to come in at down 35. I want to get along this thing because of a 35% haircut the markets. There's some great value out here now. But they didn't. They didn't do that. They just, they just kind of said, oh, we're going to get tough. And they let the markets fall. And they fell too fast. And they felt... They had to do something. You know, jawboning and, and the, the belief that everyone has in, in the abilities of these people can be used for good as well as evil. And they could go out and say, look, we're going to have an open dialogue with you. If asset prices fall 25%, 30%, that may be the necessary price. But once you, once you put that floor in down a, a, a sensible level, which represents a real revaluation of asset prices – it won't get there because everyone's going to front run you. Um, so, yes, you might get a quote unquote crash, but everyone knows where the crash stops. And so the chances are it doesn't overshoot. And if it does, the Fed can step in there and you write the ship. But this, this, this idea that, hey, we're going to try and keep everybody who's invested in stock markets happy and not frighten them. We don't want to scare the horses. But we've also got to talk tough because people are writing to their congressmen and their senators complaining about the cost of living. So we're going to keep them happy too. You can't have it both ways. So be smart about it. Realize that the trade-off is real, that, that asset prices are going to have to compensate for food prices and work out a way to make that transition in an effective way that minimizes the pain. There will be pain. 
there is pain to come. How do we minimize it and make sure that the people who feel that pain can tolerate it the best? That's the simple way you have to think about it, I think. No, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and the um, unfortunately, the path they've chosen is is one that is different from that. And, and uh, how they unwind it now, I mean, it seems like a bit of a Gordian knot at this point. Because um, like you said, I just... You know, one of the simple anecdotes we've said is, you know, you can put off paying the piper, but he always gets paid and he always has and he always will. And the longer you put it off, the bigger that the bigger that payoff premium becomes. Um, So anyway, well, hey, Grant, I I cannot thank you enough. Again, I've stolen even more of your time than than you were kind enough to grant to us. uh, Pun very much intended there. Um, And uh, just great to have you on. Great. Great to have you kind of land this for us and. Tie it up with a bow. And uh, just for the folks, they can follow you at, at grantwilliams.com uh, and sign up for the podcast. I And I don't say this um, lightly, and I don't say it just because you're on. I, I think it's one of the best going, and it's one of the few that I – actually, the only two that I pay for are yours and Dimitri Kafinas, uh, The Hidden Forces. Um, could, well, that's very kind. I, I will just correct you quickly. It's grant-williams.com. Oh. I think, I think you'll, you'll find yourself – Deep in the, uh, the the Boston Celtics bench, if you go to grantwilliams.com, but uh, yeah, grant-williams.com. Well, but you and him have so much in common anyway, right? Oh, um, yeah, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> and then they could follow you on Twitter at, at T-T-M-Y-G-H. Um, again, can't strongly... Can't can't strongly recommend it enough and, and really appreciate your work and great having you on and have a phenomenal fourth. And um, hopefully we'll uh, get a chance to talk to you again as this unfolds. I hope so. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, you bet. All right, you guys. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. We got to uh, take off, but we will be back next week. I got another great interview lined up for you, so you're not going to want to miss that. And we'll talk to you soon. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.